1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping like a log But when I get home to you I find the things that you do Gonna make me feel alright You know I work all day To get your money to buy a thing And it's worth it just to hear you 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spatero, and I am once again long overdue to have Mr. Bob Fisher on, which seems to always be the case. Every time I have you on, it's like, oh, boy, how long has it been? <laughs> so, <laughs> Too long. Yeah, I know. It, it's but, so but, weird. Time is so weird. I wish we could control it and say, no, let's just stop this for a while and do mm-hmm. all the things we want to do. Can't do it. If only, if only. But you know what? If only. I'm happy that we get the time to do the things that we do do, exactly. uh, such as talking <clears throat> about this, which is, I feel like, sorely overdue for this particular movie that we're covering, which is, you know, Bob is on. I think, you know, people could kind of pigeonhole, you know, where are Paul and Bob are together. Where are they going to go? <laughs> and I think, you know, one one of the, the obvious choices is what we're doing today, because we're covering A Hard Day's Night by the Beatles. And we did talk about a few other possibilities before this one, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason, we decided, let's go with this one. Uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly what triggered it, but when I suggested this movie, uh, I, I think Bob's keyboard was probably smoking because he wrote yes so quickly. <laughs> yes came back pretty quickly. <clears throat> well, I know we had discussed several types of movies in different genres, some Westerns, uh, couple of cop shows, movies, uh, you know, some other things that we both like. And then I think I casually mentioned, hey, one day we'll have to do one of the Beatle movies. And uh, here we are. And I'm going to tell you, last night, I'm not going to, you know, spoil the lead here too much, but I smiled almost all the way through this thing. (laughs) (laughs) I have not seen it in... uh, a dozen or more years. It's been a long, long time since I've yeah. seen this one. But I didn't have to break out my DVD because this is available on HBO Max. Yes, it is. Isn't so I watched amazing? it on there. And yeah. it's it's a nice, pristine copy of it. Yes. So I was it's, happy to see that it's, it looks like it's been remastered to some extent and the sound yeah. was nice and clear. Uh, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I'm going to jump out with the first thing that upsets me about this movie. Yeah. And it upset me greatly. And it's the first time it upset me, but it was yesterday, because I'm doing a little research to talk to you about it. Uh-huh. So, Paul's grandfather, nice old man. Yeah. Do you know how old he was when they filmed that movie? Uh, no. I would, 52. I, 52. <laughs> they kept talking about how old he was, and... Just not not even to throw numbers at you, but Bob and I are both God. fairly older than that. <laughs> yes, we, yes, we are. Incredible. And that actor's name was, um, I've drawn a blank. I don't have it in front of me. Do you have it in front of you who played John McCartney? Because he was the comedy beats. Oh, he uh, and he, he was great, too. Yeah, yeah he really was. Uh, Wilf, Wilfred Bramble. Oh, right, right. Hmm. Wilfred Bramble was an Irish television and film actor and comedian, best remembered for his role in the television series Steptoe and Son, which if you've never heard of that, that was the uh, inspiration for Sanford and Son. Uh, And if you've never heard of that, I can't really help you. He also (laughs) performed alongside the Beatles in their debut film, A Hard Day's Night, playing the fictional grandfather, and then it kind of cuts off. Uh, But, you know, you you got it from there. Uh, So good. So good. Yeah. So this movie was 1964, which means, uh, you know, as much as I'm talking about how old I am, I was too young to enjoy it when it was new. I wasn't. I was right there in the theater. In 1964, I was 12. So, 
Other people can do math out there, but I was uh, sitting in the theater watching this thing in black and white, watching the movie like I liked it, uh, alone. Popcorn, afternoon, and uh, in those days you could go into a movie and just stay there. <clears throat> with oh, you could watch it three, four, three or four times if you wanted. Yes, <laughs> yes. I got there at the uh, noon or so matinee, whatever time it was on Saturday, and watched it three or four times in a row, just sat there. Went out to do, you know, things, but uh, came back, sat down, watched it again and again and again. Uh, and uh, it was the following year that I got to see them live. But this was a better experience than seeing them live, actually. So, and I could imagine that that would be true because yeah. from everything I pick up, the live experience, you know, was lacking because you really just couldn't hear them play. You could not hear them play. You couldn't hear them. Which they do kind of recreate to some extent during the concert scenes in this film where, you you know, the the audience is going nuts like that. Um, I was too young, like I said, to uh, have gone to the theater to see it. But my memory of it is my older sister had the album, the soundtrack album, Mm -hmm. uh, and I was probably too young to be handling a... uh, a turntable and a disc, but I remember playing it on whatever, whatever, whatever record player I had at the right. time. Uh, probably when I was about five, six, seven, somewhere in that age range, mm-hmm. uh, which would have been you know a decent amount after I was two when this came out. Just to, or I was not quite two because it came out in August and my birthday wasn't until October. Mm. So I was one in five tenths, or, yeah, or one, one and eight tenths that, rather, somewhere in around age there. Age group where you don't remember a damn thing. Mm-hmm. But I do remember listening to the album when I was old enough to, you know, get any enjoyment out of that. Right. And I don't have any active memory of the first time I saw it. But my speculation would be that it was on Beatles Week on the 430 movie uh, on Channel 7 in New York when they would do certain weeks. And they probably showed uh, A Hard Day's Night, Help, and I'm not sure what else, but I do remember they did Beatles Week. Mm-hmm. If Magical Mystery Tour had been out by then? I don't think they showed that on American TV to speak of. Yeah, the only way I saw uh, Magical Mystery Tour, they did show it in the PBS station here for some reason, which I thought was quite unusual. But they did show uh, Magical Mystery Tour and... Uh, uh, I had seen it once in the theater and then there on the TV before, you know, buying it. But uh, now you, they, you need, know, they need to remaster all this stuff. But you, you know the level of Beatles fandom that I have. Exactly. And, yeah. and yet Magical Mystery Tour is virtually unwatchable for me. Yeah, yeah. I can except, understand Except for the music me. sequences, I have no exactly. interest in it whatsoever. Totally understand that. I watched it a couple years ago, I guess, before the pandemic. I watched it. And uh, it held up better to me. In fact, I watched Magical Mystery Tour and uh, um, Let It Be. Now, Let It Be is very enjoyable, except for the fact that you're seeing the disintegration of the group. You're just seeing this. this, Exactly. And in my brain, having not seen uh, Let It Be in, oh, I don't know, geez, it had been 10 years or more since I had seen Let It Be. I watched it not that long ago on TV and I'm going to tell you it changed my mind about it a little bit. My mind, I used to think this is an hour and 40 minutes 
of the Beatles hating each other. That band, that band needs to break up. Then they go out on the roof, do the rooftop concert, and you go, oh, my God, yes, that's the Beatles. That's why they need to stay together forever. Just one, one more tangent. Yeah. <laughs> one more tangent before we actually discuss this movie is I believe in November they're going to have Peter Jackson's documentary Get Back on HBO Max, uh, uh-huh. which is made from a tremendous amount of footage that they, that was culled when they made Let It Be that was not part of everything. And my understanding is that it's going to be a much more up, upbeat look at the group. It's going to be a look at the the process of making music and not so much the disintegration oh, of the band. Let's let's hope because it was torture. I remember watching that one in the theater and it was torture to me getting through that. There are some funny scenes here and there and the kids are playing and but overall it's Paul and George fighting. Just arguing. And just tell me off. what you want to pl- want me to play and I'll play it. Exactly. And I'm just oh my god, is this how they put that together? I didn't want to see this. I thought they were, you know, buds, friends, brothers for life. And yeah, that's what you then want. They, though, but then when they got on the roof and they played that concert, the roof, those four or five songs, there's a couple of moments where John and Paul actually look at each other. They make eye contact. And you just know that it's still there. When they're playing as a band like they were doing, they still had it. It's just too bad. You're watching the McCartney 321 thing on uh, Hulu? I just started watching it today, in fact. Okay. I just, that... I've watched the first part. I haven't watched all of it. He started getting into Wings middle of the second chapter. So Beatles is first chapter, first chapter and a half. Then it gets into Wings. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like Wings. I don't have any problems with Wings. No, me neither. Band Not on the Run is just... Ooh. It's funny he talks about making band on the run. See now, see what I'm doing? I'm going down the line here. <coughs> Let's get back into the uh, <clears throat> yeah. So, so a hard day's night, 1964, yes. and you know, it just I marvelled at the fact because for whatever reason I got fixated on the ages when I saw Paul's grandfather's right. 52. I said, well, how old was Paul? And he was 23. So, you know, yeah. re- more realistic for him to have been playing his father than his grandfather. Than his grandfather, yeah. Based on yeah. the age difference, but. Just thinking, you know, 24, 23, 22-year-old, all of these guys in this band at this time, and the amazing music that they're putting out, the, the maturity level of the lyrics that they were writing, and, and the, you know, the quality of, of, of just the, the music. And again, you know, you, you know I'm not a musician, so I can't really comment too much on, you know, the how how the music itself is put together, but I can still listen to it and appreciate it. Exactly, uh, yeah. So just, you know, the level of genius that these guys had at such a young age, it's just amazing it to me. But, and, it, and it is almost universal, though. You, when you see, uh, you know, all, all these acts, you know, the people who've written uh, songs, you know, where, where you think, oh, this guy's like a poet. You know, people like Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, right. Billy Joel right. even. You know, yes. a lot of their most poignant lyrics were written when they were too young to have even experienced the level of emotion that they're writing exactly. about. I'm, I've often wondered how they could pull that off. Is, as I got older and started to really feel some of the stuff and understand some of the stuff, I look back and think, oh, my God, and he was 20-something when he wrote that. How yeah. did he know? 
And it's it, it, it's amazing to me. And then I think back, you know, you know, just <clears throat> you know, just giving some, some thought to this movie, and I'm thinking, you know, well, if I was say 40 when this came out, right. Would I be looking at the Beatles as being some sort of flesh in the pan? You know, would I be looking at this movie as being, you know, Spice World, as, oppo- as opposed to something that that we'd be talking about fifty some odd years later, almost yeah. sixty years later? Possibly, possibly. Uh, that generation, our parents' generation, they didn't think this was going to last. My mother thought they were wearing wigs because, quote, men's hair doesn't grow like that. your mother must have been amazed when they were you know like five years later when they were wearing it down to their shoulders exactly she was amazed five years later when i was wearing it (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it was uh uh that kind of thing you know so uh uh, oh oh we missed here uh the superman connection since i'm here since we're talking about richard lester lester uh, we'll get we'll get to Richard Lester. Yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah. you worry about that. Yeah. Uh, but the, you know, the concept that they came up with was really simple when you think sure. about it. Just you know, we, we're going to show 36 hours in the life of the Beatles. Yep. And and you know, and, and we're going to show a fictional 36 hours, and we're going to make it comedy, but close. You know, it, it, to it's the real thing. It's pretty. You know, it, it's not incredibly creative when you think about you know that concept that that uh elevator pitch that you'd give on it uh and and i'm sure they had some question as to you know can these guys act uh (laughs) and and i think paul and george were you know okay and you know they they hit their marks and they gave their lines but i think john and ringo both showed you know pretty good comic timing uh and and you know pretty decent acting skills all things considered and i think i think ringo by far to me was the most polished of the bunch and i think they yes. focused on him a little bit more because of that i agree and with john that's what really surprised me in this watching was how much john was doing in this movie he wrote most of the music and um it, it, you look at every scene where the four of them are in it whether it's in the early in the car thing where he takes the coke bottle and he does a little coke thing to his nose or mm-hmm. you know he's doing little bits throughout this entire movie john is working his buns off but naturally he comes across and i agree with you that ringo is the uh almost the star of the thing and, to me he uh, was the breakout he was the breakout of the of the four of them and he's the one who had the, you know, not that any of them had a significant movie career, but he had the most significant of the four. Exactly. And uh, I also think it's interesting that uh, John's quoted as saying he, when the Beatles broke up, that was the main thing he was worried about was Ringo until Ringo started outselling John and Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Ringo's albums started doing really well. So well, Ringo just came out with fun music. Yeah, my, his you know. so good. I, I love Ringo's music, his soul, even his early stuff, Buku Blues, Sentimental Journey, mm-hmm. country stuff. I love Ringo's music. And, uh, no disagreement. He, and he puts out that one album called, I, I think it was Photograph or Greatest. I, think, I forgot the name of the album. I Am the Greatest. Like I Am the Greatest, written by John. And that is the closest thing you'll come to a Beatles album post-Beatles. Because John, Paul, and George, Ringo was very clever. He went to John and said, hey, I'm doing this new album. Could you write me a song or two? 
and did the same thing to Paul and George. They each wrote one or two songs. So you've got eight Beatles songs on a 12 song album. And it's it's the Beatles. Uh, it's with Ringo singing all of them. But uh, you ought to get that album if you want like Beatles post Beatles. That's right. close. Kind of like Band on the Run is a Beatles post Beatles without John. But uh, anyway, see, I'm known off again. That's all right. That's why you're here. Do you have a road map here? Do we have turn signals or a map? I, I, in, in my head, <laughs> I have a very loose road map. And, and when, when, you, when you go too far off the path, I'll, I'll grab you by the shirt and pull you back. <laughs> all right. All right. So, you know, in addition to the Beatles, they, they added several characters. Uh, you know, the, I guess the, significant, the most significant one by far is Paul's grandfather, mm-hmm. uh, who, who really just carries a lot of the comedic weight on his shoulders. Uh, he, he, he just says... He is great once he's he's a total troublemaker. Uh, I, I love it. Like he, you know, the two other characters are uh, their road manager Shake and then their overall manager, I think Norm. Uh, and and the, he, he gets the two of them. He he gets the two of them at each other's throats because they ask for something and he says you could be big about it. And the grandfather points out that he's taller than him and therefore you know he's he's doing it on purpose or whatever. And the two of them have to start arguing over it, which is total silly and I'm not doing it justice, but it's it's definitely a funny moment. Uh, and he has my favorite line in the entire movie, Paul's grandfather, when uh, they start talking about the size of Ringo's nose. And and it, it just you know it's almost a throwaway line. He says, "And look at the poor head shaking under the weight of it." <laughs> yes. <laughs> Throughout this entire movie, and so many just quick beats, quick jokes, and I think the one of the things Lester did pretty well with this was let it go. Some of the party scenes, some of the there's outtakes in the movie, stuff that should have been cut out. There's a moment where uh, uh, one of the um, dancers or girls in the big party, and it's a very crowded party scene. I've, I've been to those kinds of parties. <clears throat> and one girl asked John a question. Apparently it wasn't uh, <clears throat> written or something because John broke character for like two seconds, laughed, and they left it in. And I thought, well, that was interesting. Uh, it was that bit where everything, they go back to Paul or John. How did you find Really, we're just good friends. Yeah, exactly. All that kind of stuff. All those little quick one-liners that had obviously been planned and stuff. But then there was that one, and uh, I think it was something about how do you find American women or something. And, or she whispered in his ear, or something going on. And they left it in. And it was an obvious break of character there. But it was like, you know, a nanosecond. So only and geeks sitting here studying it would have probably noticed it. <laughs> and not that her character would stand out, but just knowing the history, the eventual history, uh, Patty Boyd, who would eventually become George Harrison's wife and subsequently become Eric Clapton's Eric wife Clapton. and subsequently become Rod Weston, who I don't even know who he is, his wife. But she was in this, and again, if if you don't know that history, all you'd do is you'd look and you'd say, "Oh, that's a very pretty girl." That's a pretty girl, yeah. And she was quite beautiful, in, in you know when you saw her in this movie, she was only twenty years old at the time, <sighs> and uh, you know, but just knowing the history, it, it really jumps out at you. And and she's you know 
front and center of uh, you know a few moments during the film, so she's easy to spot. Right. right. Uh, I I did uh, at one point read her uh, autobiography, but uh, you know I, I take some of what was said with a grain of salt because you know every everybody's recollection of their life is somewhat subjective just by nature and it's personal it's from a personal you know you're going to see your life differently than someone who lived it with you it it, it felt to me reading it that she she put so much blame on george and eric and didn't didn't really take stock of her own mistakes that she made in her life uh and I, i don't know that that's fair either yeah, so, I don't think that's too fair because uh, everything I know, uh, Eric and George were tight, tight friends all the way up to his death. So uh, Eric still talks highly of George and still gets a little verklempt when he talks about him. Well, when when George and uh, Patty got married, well, excuse me, when Eric and Patty got married, George, Paul, and Ringo all played at the wedding. Yes. So so, so George couldn't have been <laughs> yeah. too broken up. Exactly. Exactly. I think and he she, said, hmm, I like Eric. A lot. You know, I don't want to lose Eric over this. (laughs) If nothing else, she inspired some incredible music, including the songs Something and Layla, uh, you know, and and, um, many others, actually. But uh, those would probably be my two favorites on that particular list. Yeah, but just think of just those two songs right there. If either one of those two guys had only written those two songs. I mean, Something, that's an incredible song. Well, we talked about it when we did Abbey Road, and my, the thing about something that I marvel at is it is so, so well written that it's enjoyable no matter who I've ever heard sing it. Exactly. Every, every cover version I've enjoyed, and I can't say that there's songs that I love that I hate cover versions of, but right. I think something is so easily adapted to different singing styles Mm-hmm. That I've, I like every version I've ever heard, uh, but I don't. Again, you know, we're tangenting, and I just like to bring us back yeah. to this movie when I can. Back, back in, here we go. So uh, apparently, the Beatles were presented with a list of directors, and chose Richard Lester from the list, and he would have been youngish at the time this was made. I think, I think he was probably around thirty or so when they made this movie, and he right. didn't have. He didn't have a very lengthy, uh, you know, resume at that time. Uh, let's see if I can give you a little bit of his background. Yeah, I'm a little uh, curious what he had done before this. See how well prepared I am, folks. I let Paul so, do all of the research. Well, let's see. 1959, we have the running, jumping, and standing still film. 1962, we have It's Trad, Dad. 1963, we have The Mouse on the Moon. And 1964, we have a Hard Day's Night. Well, Hard Day's Night's the best one of those bunch. I've never yeah, heard of the other three. Jeez. So just just as far as <clears throat> other significant movies on his resume, uh, 1965, we have Help. Uh, 1966, we have A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Uh, 1967, he reteamed up with John Lennon for How I Won the War, which I've never seen. Uh, find the clips of John. <laughs> Okay. You see the whole movie. Well, I, I've never seen it. I don't know if I ever will. Uh, yeah, I... 1973, The Three Musketeers, <clears throat> which apparently was was, was made uh, with the Four Musketeers, but I don't think they uh, 
they actually knew that they were making a sequel. I think they they, they just had so much footage <laughs> that they went went with it. Uh, 1974, we have Juggernaut, which I've heard of but never seen. That's with I'm Richard Harris. Yeah. Uh, Robin and Marion in 1976, which I think is a very good movie. Excellent uh, Robin Hood movie, yeah. And then just just there's a couple of others that I've heard of, but then when we get to 1980, we have Superman 2, which he took over from Richard Donner and uh, did some interesting things. Interesting with thing. it. Not always things that I liked. Uh, <laughs> having seen the, the Donner cut, I kind of wish they had been able to polish that up yeah. and and uh, me too, me too, and, and me do too. it the right way. Yeah, that uh, was some of the, his jokes, his comedy beats in in uh, what should have been a very uh, big bad fight scene. That that kind of bothered me. His comedy beats in the Superman. Oh, there's a, yeah, a lot of the comedy beats when you look yeah. back on it. Those are the ones that I cringe yeah. at when I watch the yeah. movie now. Me too. Uh, especially with uh, non. Yeah. And uh, the guy in the phone booth being. Oh, 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 please. Or the guy in the roller skates. Yeah, I mean, that. yeah, all that. All of that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> pulling us back again. Uh, looks like he wrapped up his career in 1991, which I've never seen and I do need to see, with a Paul McCartney concert movie called Get Back. You know, I think I've seen that, but it does, you know, hmm. Because I've seen several Paul McCartney move, uh, concerts. Get that. I'll have to look that up and see if I've seen that. Yeah, I, I have not. If, uh, I the, think. the concert that I've seen significantly is uh, the 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 movie of it was called Rock Show, and that's from right. the from the mid seventies Wings Over America tour. I saw that uh, twice in Washington D.C. Saw that show twice, Friday and Saturday night, and it was identical. Yeah, and I, that's the. I think we talked about that before. That's the thing that bothers me a little bit, a bit about McCartney uh, yeah. in concert is all the things that you think are, uh, you know, are, are ad libs are yeah. very, very carefully re- rehearsed. Every and beat was rehearsed and planned and timed and lit. There was even Elvis would stop the band and say, ho, 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 let me talk for a second. He didn't do any of that. His jokes, his everything it was an identical show both friday and saturday night and i guess it makes sense because they're recording it and they wanted you know to take a cut from this concert and that concert and meld them all together to make one but uh that was amazing it's a good show it's a really good show but it didn't have the you know i don't know what the the hmm the spontaneity. Yeah, there you go, of what I want to see in a live show. But then again, I go and see Bob Dylan a couple of years ago, and I've never seen a performer who acted like the audience wasn't there. It was just him and the band up on stage. Even the way the band was set on stage, their instruments were all pointed towards each other. They didn't. Do, they just kind of waved their hand up as they left, but the entire concert was the band. My my understanding is that's what you get if you go to a Van Morrison concert, uh, and that with him it's primarily related to the fact that he actually has a level of stage fright. He's not comfortable mm. performing in front of people, so okay. he has to kind of make it feel like he's not performing for anybody. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. 
But that, once again, getting us back to, back, to the Beatles. <laughs> back to the Beatles. So Richard Lester, in my opinion, is well suited for, and, and I'm going to base it on this one movie because I haven't seen Get Back, but mm-hmm. well suited for, for putting together a concert film uh, and well suited to comedy. And that's why, uh, you know, we could look at Superman 2 and say, well, that's a movie. It's not that the comedy was bad. It's that the com- we don't think the comedy belonged. It didn't at belong. least that's, that's the way I take it. Right. Uh, you know, I, I don't want the, I don't want, I, I don't mind a little, you know, comic relief in a movie, but I don't want it to be over the top in a movie like that. In like this that. movie, it is a comedy. And I think the timing of it, the way it's, directed is all really well done and in the live scenes when they when they're showing them performing live at the end and even during the during the course of the movie when they have an occasional song that they're playing uh he seemed to go for some very atypical angles Mm -hmm. and extreme close-ups and things that wouldn't necessarily jump out at somebody uh, I think he was taking some chances, really, what is what it comes down to. It's, it's, he didn't do the safe choices on how to portray a live performance. And I think in this particular version, it, it yielded benefits. And I think it was really well done. Uh, and I think it made it feel it made it pop out at you and made you feel part of the performance. And again, watching this, you know, 56 years old, uh, this 56 year old film uh, yesterday with, you know, a remastered print and, and remastered soundtrack uh i i was just fully immersed in it once again yeah yeah i think it's the same thing i think that's exactly what you're saying there is that regardless of how old oh and the risks that lester took here like you're saying the extreme close-ups and they weren't quick cut close-ups he would go in on the singer's faces particularly in the live performance stuff and leave it there for what seemed like a long time before cutting away to above angle or this angle or that angle. And I think it worked. One, he did take a chance, but it worked because the Beatles pulled it off. Um, they got into it, and you could tell, particularly towards the end, we don't know how, what sequence was shot when, and you know, I haven't studied that deep. I don't know in what order they shot the thing. But by the end of the movie, in that other live scene, when they pull out the acoustic guitars, that just looks so natural, so normal. And it almost looked like they were doing it, and Lester just happened to say, hey, turn the cameras on. And a lot of this movie felt like that, that stuff was just happening, and somebody said, hey, turn a camera on. Other parts, obviously, the comedy bit with the, with the uh, the short guy and the tall guy and the <laughs> grandfather and the you know and here are two guys that was the grandfather and they used him so well that he could cause trouble with anybody anywhere anytime and how they pulled that off was just so funny and finding him in situations uh, hello boys I'm engaged <laughs> <laughs> oh no you're not <laughs> oh, no, you're not <laughs> yeah yeah it was uh, made me laugh. Oh, definitely. Oh, one other thing. Uh, for people who, at this period of time, uh, 64, the Beatles were iconic with their instruments that they played. Paul's Hofner bass, uh, 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 Paul, uh, John's uh, Rickenbacker, um, little black 
that's a small, well, there's a number and all, but it's a smaller than normal size guitar. But George wasn't playing his Gretsch, Country Gentleman. He was playing a Rickenbacker 12-string throughout the entire movie. He never went to his other guitar. And I thought that was really interesting. I didn't notice that uh, in the earlier mm-hmm. takes, but I but I wasn't, you know. And that's that's really kind of inside the lines. But Because uh, I love what they'll do sometimes in Beatles when they'll do their the film version of uh, a song. They did it with Penny Lane, Strawberry Field. They did it with a lot of stuff where they did film versions mm-hmm. of the songs. Yeah. Where, Precursor to music videos. Exactly. And if you notice, they'll, they'll switch up instruments that they didn't play on the record. They'll have, you know, John playing bass and, and Paul playing lead or something uh, for the for the video. And it's almost like they just say, it doesn't matter. Just hold the instrument. We want to do more of us jumping off the tree backwards than it matters who's holding the Hoffner bass. Right. Uh, oh, that's know, interesting. But, I, I, I wouldn't have caught that, actually. Yeah. I, I think it's me because I really have this thing for guitars. I can't help it. And... Uh, I like to notice what these guys are playing and what they're doing. And uh, I mean, for years, I tried to copy that chord in A Hard Day's Night, that opening chord, make it up myself, just try to figure it out. I couldn't do it. Couldn't get close to that chord. And you, and even today, you go on YouTube and you'll find 10 videos of 10 musicians giving you 10 different versions of what that chord is. George said, oh, it's just an F major with an A and a G on top. Who knows what Paul was playing? What? No, that's not it. What are you thinking? No. It, it's, a, it's an amazing discussion for one chord, that opening chord of A Hard Day's Night. And that's the first thing we hear in this movie is that opening chord. The opening credits are silent. There's two like Miramax and something else, something else. The very first thing we hear is that opening chord to Hard Day to Night, <clears throat> and then the song, and right away from that song. Which now, apparently the uh, apparently the term "A Hard Day's Night" is taken. Uh, there, there apparently was a lot of controversy over it. I, I don't know why it would be controversial, but there were very different versions of how they came upon that wording. Uh, but ultimately, they all kind of have in common that it came from Ringo somehow. Mm-hmm. That he he jumbled the words together that way mm-hmm. uh, after they had been on a uh, you know a lengthy tour or a lengthy run of concerts or whatever it may have been, uh, but apparently like you know it it became a uh, you know something something that was being explored in different interviews and stuff. But again, it seems like the the one uh, the one consistent thing is that it came from Ringo somehow. Right. Ringo was good at that, coming out with quick little one-liners. People forget how he was older than the other Beatles. He had been around longer. He was a sophisticated guy. Paul said when he first met Ringo, when they went to interview him for the job, he was already sitting there. He had just played a gig, and they'd finished, and there he was in a nice-looking suit and ruffled shirt and rings and drinking a mixed drink. And he said, we didn't drink mixed drinks. We drank beer and Coke. What was this guy? Who was he? Right. Well, one of the greatest drummers of all time. <laughs> now, one of one of my great disappointments is, you know, I've seen Paul McCartney in concert several times. Never right. saw John, never saw George. Uh, both passed away with, without me having a chance to see them. 
and uh, we had tickets to see Ringo's All Star Band uh, in Manhattan on a for a show that was canceled due to COVID. <gasps> so, so I still have not seen Ringo live. I mean, I've seen video footage, obviously, of right. all of them. Right. Uh, but I've oh, never I'd seen... love to see him in the All Star Band, man. His band. everything, everything I've ever oh, seen of the All Star Band, uh, and I've seen various things. It just looks like it's so much fun. It's you know he he surrounds himself with extremely talented musicians, and all of them are just you know they're enjoying the moment because they don't have to be the center of attention, uh, other than you know maybe you know each act or each artist gets to do you know two or three of his own songs or four of his own songs something like that, but they don't have to carry the show the way they do. Uh, the most recent one I saw a video on YouTube. Uh, and and this was part of the same tour that I was going to go to. Uh, they have the uh, the lead singer from Toto, and I watched them doing Africa, and mm-hmm. it just looked wonderful. Mm-hmm. It really did. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm still hopeful to I'm still hopeful to go see him. You know, if and when it gets rescheduled at a, at a time and place that we can make it. Uh, you know, my yeah, I hope my, my wife says, "Yeah, we were going to go see the Beatles." <laughs> no, we weren't going to go see the Beatles. <laughs> but. But we, we yeah. were going to go see the only Beatle I, that, that I can still see that I haven't already. Exactly. But I'd love to see the All-Star. I've seen a couple of, you know, uh, YouTubes. I've watched their concerts on YouTubes. And it doesn't matter what year. You could pick a year. His All-Star band changes, but it's just the best in the business. And like you say, they're there to support Ringo. And I love it. He plays all of his hits from the Beatles. He plays his solo stuff. He does some country stuff. It's a it's a really good show. And well, I given a chance, I will see it. Yeah, and you figure so, he's seventy seven now, seventy eight, nine. He's getting uh, close to eighty, I think. I thought he was. I thought he was slightly less. I thought he was like seventy five, seventy six, but I could be wrong. Uh, let's see. I could tell you, he is. Drum roll, please. No, he he is eighty one. Yeah, see, I thought so because uh, I bless turned, him. I turned seventy in January, so I thought these guys were all at least ten years older than me, but uh, nine or something. But yeah, look at that, eighty-one, and he's out there doing. And he looks great. He looks he great. He's uh, just just to mention a couple of uh, cameo appearances in the movie. Uh, you know, I mentioned uh, Patty Boyd. Uh, some people may be familiar with Charlotte Rampling. Uh, I would say her most memorable role was the love interest in the movie The Verdict with Paul Newman. Mm, okay. uh, and she plays a nightclub dancer in this. And then the, the more surprising cameo appearance is a schoolboy watching the Beatles TV performance is Phil Collins. No kidding. No kidding. See, I didn't know that. There was a new one. So just, just you know, just wow. fascinating stuff. I guess, you know, Phil was uh, interested in show business from the start. He couldn't have been start. very old at that point. Let's see. Now, Phil Collins. Been five or six, seven. Let's see. He was born in 51. So he would have been 10 years old or so, maybe yeah. 12, maybe 10, between 10 and 12 when they filmed 10 and this. 12. Right. There you go. Because, uh, yeah. So he's only a year older than me. So that's let's. Uh, I think we we would be doing ourselves a disservice and the listeners a disservice if we didn't at least run through the uh, the songs. 
Oh, the songs. So obviously we have the title song, A Hard Day's Night. Written uh, yeah. uh, very quick by John. Mm-hmm. And and just, to me, totally engaging and, and you know, quick, upbeat. Uh, I think it's the song that, you know, when I talked about playing the record as a kid, I think it was the one that I played the most. Mm. Uh, the fact mm-hmm. that it's the first song on the album made it easy. <laughs> right. Uh, right. So you have uh, I Should Have Known Better, which is... Again, just another catchy song. I, I, I'm going to just say I like them all. I'm going to say it up front. I like them all. I think they're yeah, all pretty much classics. Yeah. It's pretty much every song. So I'm just going to run through the list because otherwise I'm just going to we're going to get repetitive. We're going to be like, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, that's a good one. That's right. Uh, that's yeah, right. I want to be your man, which is just a small portion of it, but that's uh, to me that one stands out because it's a Ringo lead, uh, Ringo and they show that one lead singing rather that is yeah. but uh they uh that's when they're in the club dancing and it's it, to me I, I don't know i find it comical to see ringo there dancing to ringo singing uh, <laughs> and and he's got like kind of a funny dance step as he does it which i assume is intentional intentional uh, he's being a clown too ringo yeah. loved the comedy bit and his was such subtle stuff Loved it. have another sampling from don't bother me which i think is also in the club uh just a you know George Harrison singing and one of the, you know, just a, another one of the kind of like the darker songs. Yes, from particularly from George. Another sample from All My Lovin'. Uh, you know, the, I don't even know what to say about it. Just, you know, yeah. another great song. But then we have pretty much full songs of If I Fell, uh, which to me stands out as the one song where they intentionally put a voice cracking in other than the Brady Bunch doing Time to Change. <laughs> And we have uh, Can't Buy Me Love, And I Love Her, I'm Happy Just to Dance With You. Uh, we have Ringo's theme, which is only played as an instrumental. Right. And that's also known as This Boy. And that was that was another one of uh, the scenes, you know, allowed Ringo's comedy stylings to come out, the whole thing with him putting the coat over the puddle for the woman to oh, to, 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 to step on so that she doesn't and get her shoes dirty. And it was the third one, Always in Three. First two puddles, everything is fine. Third one, bang, down. She, uh, she falls in and he just runs away. <laughs> runs away. And the kid he was talking to, uh, that was a good kid. That kid played his part really well, too, um, that Ringo was talking to. Yeah, that was an actor named David Jansen, uh, not the actor not from The Fugitive. Yeah, not The Fugitive. But, uh, in fact, he, he was credited job. in this as David Jackson. I guess maybe, mm. maybe so as not to confuse himself with David Jansen. Right. But, uh, yeah, he did a great job in that, that scene. I thought that was a whole, that was really a, uh, a much better scene than I had remembered it. Uh, Ringo and the, you know, going to the thrift store and putting that, uh, not a very good disguise on just a hat and a long coat, but nobody knew him with the hat and the long coat. I thought that was just well done. Well done. And what do you mean a, a pair of glasses can't disguise <laughs> you? <laughs> just to finish out the song list, we have Tell Me Why and She Loves You. Yeah. What a, lot a of, song list. A lot of great stuff. Yeah. Uh, and just, you know, a, another scene where they allowed a spotlight was George with the fashion people. It's damn well, <laughs> it's damn well grotty. Of course it's grotty. <laughs> but you'll be begging us for it. <laughs> yeah. George handled that scene really well. Uh you know, a little, a little stiff, a little stiff. But, uh, but when you look back at it, you think, yeah, well, he was absolutely right, you know. And that showed off a lot what they were trying to do too about that one scene. Okay, let's stick this scene in to show how 
anti-commercialism we are, when in fact, beetle wigs, beetle shirts, beetle boots, beetle hats, beetle this, beetle that, were everywhere. And there was a scene in the opening of this when they're in the train and John crosses his legs and you see his boots. I can remember as a kid thinking, I want those boots. I want beetle boots. Never got a pair of beetle boots. Always no, that was boots. that was the case with just about everything they did back then. <laughs> <laughs> no, everything was uh, monetized. Uh, and, but but that's I, I don't even think I'm not even meaning from the monetized point of view. I'm, I mean from the uh, they were trendsetters, fashion. Oh, absolutely. You know yeah. they whatever they did, everybody wanted to do. Absolutely, and, and it's amazing. You know because you go from the the simple you know suits and Nehru jackets. You know, mm-hmm. up through the you know hair down to the shoulders and long beards, you know what it was. They were setting the style for people of that age. And Me. again, I it, I just mm-hmm. always wonder, you know, I wish I could go back and know what was in my dad's brain at that time when I he know was, what was in my dad's brain. <laughs> well, you know, my dad would have been you know maybe ten years older than the Beatles at that point. Yeah, you, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, well, I know there were some songs that he liked, but I can't imagine that he liked what they were doing style wise with the hair yeah. and the, and the outfits no, my and, father hated them. Hey, and knowing, hey, knowing hey, that hey, they hey. were, you know, uh, experimenting with different types of mind altering items, yes, you know, he, exactly. he, he could not have had any respect for any of that. That's not, yeah. that was not my dad's style. Yeah. Uh, my, my dad didn't like that either. Uh, uh, but my dad was more, uh, 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 a southern country, Hank Williams, the hardcore stuff, outlaw. No, my my dad was more Frank Sinatra, Nat King yeah, Cole, that, that, that kind that of. That was thing. my mother. My mother liked some of that, but my father was hardcore redneck country. And but then you know, that, but I I even mean it from the perspective of, you know, did somebody, you know, of our our dad's ilks. Uh, did they look, you know, in 1964 and think this is just going to be a flash in the pan by 1966? We'll be on to the next thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, in in yeah. 1966, what did they think? In 1968, what did they think? In 1971, <laughs> when the Beatles no longer existed, what did they think? Right. You know, I, I would love to be able to do some sort of a, uh, a time travel learning, you know, of, of what was the, the overall thought of somebody who was not a fan. Right. And, and, and you know, I don't even think. Like for my dad, I'm not even saying he would have been a hater. He would have hated certain aspects of it, like the drug use and all of that. But there were songs, you know, that he liked, you know, from this, uh, you know, If I Fell or uh, And I Love Her. You know, he would have have been all over those, 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 you know, those nice, slow love songs. Right. Well, my dad, the only thing he liked were a couple of the Ringo uh, country tunes. Act naturally naturally would have been good, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, I think Ray Price or somebody else in the country world on the Grand Ole Opry also did that. So, you know, that gave him a little hope. But uh, he thought it wasn't going to last. He thought it would be over, that the world would get back, you know, to some sort of semblance of what he thought was sanity. But I knew it wasn't. This was the real deal. I was totally... uh, well, I was into music. I was buying everything in those days. Albums were like a dollar ninety-eight. You know, I mean, you're buying everything. So I'm buying Beatles and Stones and well, everything. Yeah, but a dollar ninety-eight back then was twenty dollars now. 
it, it was uh, a hunk of allowance, and there were several times when it came up to go, Ooh, I didn't know they were releasing this, and I don't have that. Do I get the giant annual of Superman, or do I get, uh, hmm, hmm, hmm. Well, I know the record will still be there next week. The comic will not be there next week. So I usually bought the comic because I knew I could always go back and get the record for some reason. Comics didn't stay on the stands long. So, because it wasn't a comic store, it was, you know, 7 Elevens and, you know, grocery stores and stuff. So finding comics was, uh, it was a hunt. So when one pops up, you buy it. Now, this movie, yeah. I just keep bringing us back. This is what I do. Good. This, is uh, this, this movie was surprisingly, in my mind, well-received. Not because it shouldn't be, and I sit here and I say it's a classic now. I have right. no, no issue with that. But just right. because I would have thought that the more mainstream people of the day would be looking down their noses at this. And, and you know, they, oh, again, I think they would be thinking it's some sort of flesh in the pan, and they would think that this is lowbrow somehow. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they would try and criticize it. But even at the time, it was positively reviewed. It's eventually, you know, been placed on many, uh, yes. you know, top lists of movies. Uh, was it Roger Rebert described the film as one of the great life-affirming landmarks of the movies? Yeah, and, and I added it to his list of the great movies uh, in 2004. Oh, in 2004, Total Film Magazine named A Hard Day's Night the 42nd greatest British film of all time. Hmm. So, I mean, it's it's I've well, seen repeatedly solid, solid reviews of this movie, and some of which were contemporary to the time. I think uh, the reason is that there was a lot of question in particularly the older generation, my parents' generation about the Beatles. Long hair, they thought they were, you know, weird and out there. I think what this movie did, and the press and everything revolving around it, showed that the Beatles were not threatening. They were just young boys having fun playing music. And, you and not only... All not only the girls, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, not only was it a bit of comic genius to have the grandfather in there because he was hilarious but i think it also grounded them yes i think having yeah. paul traveling with his grandfather and caring about his grandfather you know gave them a certain sense of look see these these people you know they they value their families and you know what that kind of thing exactly exactly so i think it showed them enough i mean we got the zany uh john doing little bits and takes and over the top stuff periodically uh, and we had, you know, Paul just being cute, you know, George Cerebral and Ringo carried, I think he was the best of the four of them in this, uh, but, uh, super solid movie. Absolutely. It belongs on the top lists of these, uh, uh, companies because it, it, it is, it, it really is. Uh, I love what Lester did here in this movie. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'll say about and then, Richard yeah. Lester. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can talk about the influences that this movie had on other movies and just looking, you know, they say, oh, it influenced spy thrillers and comedies of the later 60s. But I think the, the biggest, most obvious influence it had was this movie, I think, is responsible for the creation 
of the monkeys. Yep. I knew you were going there. Absolutely. And, and I tell you, I, I saw the monkeys in concert about two or three times back in the mid mid eighties. And I Ooh, loved yeah. them. Yeah. I they were them. great. Uh, you know, I they, they put out some great music, uh, just fun, fun music. The TV show got, went a little over the top for me sometimes, but, uh, you know, it, it clearly was inspired by this. Listen, I love the TV show. I understood it. People got all, you know, got their whatever all in a bundle because they didn't play on the records. Well, so, so what? A lot of singers had professional musicians in concert. It was the four of them up there playing the music. I'm sorry. You'll have to explain to me what instrument was Frank Sinatra playing when they. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Elvis occasionally played the guitar, but very right. often didn't. Right. He could, but he didn't. And these guys are musicians, you know. Now, obviously, uh, uh, Mickey was an actor, a child actor, but he was a drummer. He was a musician. He had played stuff. Uh, Peter Tork was a trained musician. Michael Nesmith was a trained musician. Davy Jones was a singer and an actor in theater. These are professionals. So, now, I agree with you. It was a fun show. It was a good show. It was based on the Beatles. It was a takeoff of the Beatles. And I loved on uh, on one of our local channels in reruns, they started showing the monkeys uh, uh, right after uh, the Beatles animated cartoon show. Remember mm-hmm. that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that, too. That was fun. I, I don't think that holds up as well. And Unfortunately, it doesn't. Yeah. And I think the main reason is because they didn't actually, although they played Beatles songs, they yeah. didn't have the Beatles doing the voice acting. Exactly. And uh, they made a mistake by the, by not having uh, the real Beatles do it. Or Although the Beatles, Beatles might not have been willing to do it. I don't they weren't know. willing to. They didn't want to do it. They didn't want to do uh, uh, Yellow Submarine. That's not the four of them doing the voices in Yellow Submarine either. And they didn't want to do it until they saw the clips. When they saw some of the rushes, they thought, oh, oh, yeah, we should have done that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Too late. <clears throat> but, <laughs> yeah. But but anyway. It, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it, it, you know, it definitely had a lot of influence as far as that goes. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else we should hit on before we rate this. I don't know. We've hit on their acting. We've hit on Richard Lester. We've hit on the music, which is outstanding sampling of early Beatles stuff, ending the last song, She Loves You. Uh, And I must admit here, She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand were not my favorites early on because they played them every 30 seconds. Every channel, every station, everywhere was playing I Want to Hold Your Hand and She Loves You. I got so sick of those songs. But hearing She Loves You last night, all of a sudden you go, that song is really kicking. That's actually a rocking little tune there. Uh, I think one of Paul's better ones, though, is uh, I Saw Her Standing There. I really love I Saw Her Standing There. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm going to give you another cameo appearance in this that I just found as I was going through it. Margaret Nolan plays a girl in the casino. So it's just a a bit nothing part. Just just a part, yeah. She... is known to us as having been been the girl who played the character of Dink in Goldfinger, who eventually gets painted gold and left on the bed to die and is in all the ads and no kidding, everything for that movie. 
I guess she grew up. Well, it, it's timing-wise, this was 1964, this movie. Goldfinger had to be right around there. Yeah, early, the first gold, Goldfinger had to be Goldfing, Goldfinger's also Six. 64. It was 64. Mm-hmm. Wow. And just to, to take it a step further, she play, she was also in uh, Ferry Cross the Mersey, which was inspired by this movie. That was a musical movie uh, starring Jerry and the Pacemakers. Jerry and the Pacemakers, absolutely. He just recently died, I think. I think Jerry recently I'm, died within I the had last not few heard years. That. Yeah. That's a game. That's a game. Are we, is he alive or dead? Kim and I play yeah. it all the time. Alive or dead? I hate that game. <laughs> yeah, no, like, we're not good at it either. Yeah. 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 All right. So all that said, do I even have to ask you what, where you're going to rank this? <laughs> is it Jaws? <laughs> is it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The only the only yeah. thing I will give you, and I do not forgive this, but I'm going to just mm-hmm. say, if you're somebody who d- just can't take black and white movies, right. and again, I do not forgive that. I think that is a ridiculous position, but Agreed. there are some people who would feel that way. You know, oh, it's old. I can't watch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you might not get the experience out of this, but as long as you can handle the fact that, you know, it's older and the styles are older, uh, it's absolutely Jaws. There's no question. And again, if you can't handle that, why are you even listening to us? Why are you? Li- if you can't handle a black and white movie, you got some problems. Uh, I don't know. Now this is, uh, I forget which one this is, but have we done a, have you and I done a color episode yet? <laughs> well, we did Rio Bravo, oh, which yeah, is we color. Did Rio Bravo, right. <laughs> we did, did, we did the earth. This, this, the day the Earth stood still, which is black and white. Black and white, right? Uh, I think we may have done one more, and I can't think of even what it was off the top of my head. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. Right. But now, you know but what? All I'll say is you'll be back, and when you're back, we'll do another. Uh, you know, I, I will definitely do another one, and it might be help, which is in color. Help! <laughs> I need somebody. Yeah, we can do that. If we but, get one piece of email that says "Do help," we'll do help. Absolutely. <laughs> that that seems fair to me. Paul, what a blast. Thank you uh, for doing Bob, thank this. you. Thank yeah. you for making the time to come on with me. It's always a pleasure. Oh, I love it, man. You're talking about my favorite stuff, Soups and uh, the Beatles. And we have a connection to both of them here. So There, there we go. Uh, th- so I'm glad, I'm glad you had the time to be on, and I'm glad that everybody else had the time to listen, and we'll see you all in two weeks. Bye-bye. I've always liked that question. I never noticed his nose until about six months ago. And my mother asked me before I left for America if I wanted any sandwiches. Oh, when I plugged her in, she just blew up. Tell me, uh, how did you find America? So I left to Greenland. Has success changed your life? Yes. I'd like to keep Britain tidy. Are you a mod or a rocker? Um, no, I'm a mocker. <laughs> Have you any hobbies? No, actually, we're just good friends. Do you think these haircuts have come to stay? Well, this one has, you know. Stuck on good and proper now. <laughs> Frankly nice. Uh, what would you call that uh, hairstyle you're wearing? Arthur. No, actually, we're just good friends. You're the brown, aren't they? What do you call that collar? Oh, a collar.
Oh, do you often see your father? No, actually, we're just good friends. How do you like your girlfriends to dress? 